This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. You might have uh, noticed yesterday on the news, the liberal government creating a new watchdog to review security and intelligence agencies and extending new powers to its spy agencies. What does this mean for our international relations and how does it affect you and I? Is it any different from what the previous government had in uh, in order? Let's bring in Stephanie Carvin. She is assistant professor of international affairs, Carleton University, and with us now. Hello, Stephanie. How are you today? I'm well, thank you. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for taking the time to join us. We greatly appreciate this. So uh, give us a, a, an overview here. What is there much different between this and the previous bill that uh, the Harper government had introduced? What's the difference here? Uh, there's a lot that's different here. Um, just the size of the bill is tantamount to that. So it runs 150 pages. So it's it's a substantial piece of legislation. And on top of that, like, you know, it, it, it's kind of an omnibus bill because within it, there's actually three acts, which uh, one is the creation of a national security and review agency, which will oversee all of the kind of intelligence activities of the government, something that uh, people have been uh, or experts have been wanting for some time. Secondly, there's going to be an intelligence commissioner who's going to be a little bit more in the weeds. Uh, that's going to basically be uh, investigating the way that databases are used and the way authorization for certain kind of cyber activities are going to be done. And finally, there's actually now the CSE, the Communication Security Establishment, which is like Canada's NSA, uh, our electronic spying agency. They now have their own act in law. So those are the three acts. And then that's on top of all the changes that were made to the previous Bill C-51. So there's a lot here for us to go through. Uh, What are the major changes in what was there before? Because we remember when the initial bill was introduced by the Harper government, uh, the liberals were criticizing it quite a bit about it being an invasion of privacy. So what has this done to alleviate that? Well, I would focus on really two things. One is the the disruption aspect of it. And this kind of came out of a... I think, a sentiment within the Harper government that, you know, intelligence agencies would know about people who wanted to do things, such as traveling to Syria, and they would want, you know, when they said, well, why didn't you stop them from going? Let's just say, well, we don't have a mandate to do that. So it then said, fine, here you have a mandate now to disrupt any kind of these activities. And there was a lot of concern because, you know, um, CSIS doesn't have prosecutorial powers. So if you disrupt something, how are are you going to then put that person in jail? Um, so, you know, there's a lot of concern that way. So what this piece of legislation does is it actually says, well, what kinds of activities that CSIS can do? So we now know what those activities are and what the limitations on them are. And I think that's good because it's more transparent for Canadians, whereas before it was kind of a guessing game as to what actually was, was happening. Uh, the other aspect of it this is um, that I think we'll probably hear a lot about is the free speech aspect of it, which was, you know, before if you were you could be accused of basically inciting terrorism. And a lot of people felt that that was too wide of a definition that, mm-hmm. you know, it was too dangerous. You know, it actually impinged on freedom of speech and would not actually stand up to a charter challenge. So, you know, the courts could overturn it. So what they've done now is they've taken that away and they have turned it into more of a um, uh, you can't uh, encourage someone. Uh, to, or you can't, can't counsel, that's the term, you, see, you can't counsel someone to commit a terrorist offense. Uh, it appears that this is a lot more aggressive when it comes to defending ourselves against cyber attacks. Uh, we heard the defense minister say that, you know, in the past we just reacted when we were attacked. Now we will be aggressively attacking others. Expand on that a bit. So, okay, so in the bill, this is in the CSE Act and also to a certain extent in the Information Commissioner Act. But basically, yeah, it's 
fully come out and said, you know, we now do what they call active cyber operations. They don't use the term offensive. Uh, I think that's deliberate. Uh, but they now say we now do active cyber operations, which is essentially, you know, going after the people and trying to either stop attacks before they start or uh, going after people to prevent them from continuing an attack. Uh, it, it doesn't really specify to the degree that retaliation would be involved here. But basically, yeah, I mean, you know, we now have on paper the fact that, you know, in law that we can um, go after some of the people who might be trying to hack us. Why is that why is that important and in the past we could just retaliate after they attacked us uh, how did we arrive there how did we arrive where we are now Well I think you know there's this is the problem like we're dealing with cyberspace and sometimes we like to transpose our ideas about kind of the real world to cyberspace and it doesn't always work that way. Like, what, what does deterrence look like in cyberspace? Like, how do you stop someone from, from actively trying to go against you? And, you know, in some cases, that may require an offensive capability. So that's kind of why this is a big deal, because, you know, like, there's this very well-worn, somewhat inappropriate expression, which is the best defense is a good offense. And, you know, so I think this bill kind of acknowledges that, that, you know, being able to prevent things before they start, um, is is actually quite important, whereas opposed to just, you know, we're no longer going to take a passive kind of reaction to it that actually, no, if we think that, you know, things are, are coming bad, we're going to take a much more active role in actually some kind of uh, cyber uh, response. As you mentioned earlier, this has taken a lot of organizations and put them under one umbrella now, which seems to make common sense to the average person, I would guess. Uh, that being said, uh, people are always concerned when we add another layer of government and it not working efficiently with the other organizations that it is supposed to encompass. How do we make sure that everyone's on the same page? Right. So I think um, to, to see the first point, yeah, I mean, the good, the good news is that before, if, you know, you know, there was review of these organizations, but if once intelligence had left the building, for example, the review agency for CSIS, which was called CERC, was no longer able to follow that information. And that's no longer going to be the case. They, they, there's someone who now can have, or there's a committee that will now have that wider review. Uh, I, I agree. I think the main concern I have is they, they're setting up a lot of committees all at once. So you have the information commissioner who's going to need uh, support. There's the, the, the review committee is called the National Security and Intelligence Review Agency. They're going to have to have a secretariat. The, the, there's also a third group that's being set up, which is the, uh, the Committee of Parliamentarians you may have heard about last fall, which is the Bill C-22 committee. There's another need for a secretariat. So where are you actually going to get all these people uh, to support these secretaries? I think that's one issue. But I, I agree with the principle that review is important. Review makes you do, do your job better. You know, when I, when, you know, when I first moved out from my parents' house, I could have ice cream for dinner every night. Hmm. And sure enough, I got sick. <laughs> That's <a> parental <laughs> review. And it's a bad analogy, but in some ways, you know, if you have someone watching over you, it makes you want to do your job better. And I think that, you know, is it, is it going to be another layer? Perhaps. Is that a concern? Yes. But if it's staffed appropriately, it shouldn't be too bad. And Quite frankly, like we're talking about the nation's most important secrets and the privacy of Canadians. I don't think we should, you know, put too cheap of a value on that. 
Uh, absolutely. Uh, however, though, a lot of these organizations have been around for a long time. A lot of them are set in their ways. A lot of them do things a certain way. Are you confident that uh, they'll th- there will be some sort of cohesive leadership that that brings all of these together, as opposed to uh, you know maybe a half a dozen organizations all running into each other? Well, I think there's going to be a job for both the Committee of Parliamentarians and this new National Review uh, agency. I think this is uh, absolutely what they what they should be focusing on is actually how well are they doing their job. But you're right. I mean. Um, the, the job of the committee itself, I think, is actually going to be challenging because, you know, when we look at how intelligence is shared, the way that it's used, say, at, at CSIS, the way it's used at Department of National Defense, the way it's used at, you know, other agencies, public safety, is all very different. So the risk is that these people in the National Review Agency will have to have a good idea of how intelligence is used and why and for what purposes and how is it stored in many, many different groups. So, so much of it's going to depend on the support that the government does give to the kind of secretariat which is supporting the actual kind of review itself. So, it, it's a legitimate concern, I think. But um, uh, I do, you know, I, I used to work in the national security community. So, I, I believe the people there are professionals. I believe they do a good job. And um, we shouldn't be too worried on that front. Many have said that uh, we're in a different world now, Stephanie. We're fighting wars differently now than we used to. They're not territorial. Uh, it's not about machinery and, and and all of that sort of thing. It's more intelligence, more data gathering, more cyber warfare. Uh, is this a sign that we're finally getting that? We're finally understanding that? We're finally, as you said, using new rules to fight a new world, a, a new war, as opposed to the old rules to fight it? Well, I think if we look around the world at the conflicts today, the vast majority of them are actually still very low tech. But, um, you know, like we're, we're using guns, we're seeing child soldiers and these kinds of horrific things. But, you know, all signs are pointing to increasing use of cyber. I mean, the Islamic State, which, you know, can use some fairly rudimentary weapons, also has an extremely powerful propaganda unit. Uh, so, you know, there's cyber in that aspect. And then you kind of move down the spectrum to some of the influence operations that Russia has been engaged in. And then finally, you kind of worry about a full-on kind of cyber attack, which, you know, a major actor like China could perhaps do. So I think there's a spectrum here. Where we are on that spectrum, um, I would say, you know, by and large, most conflicts still seem to be kind of at the low-tech, but almost every, even low-tech conflicts these days have some kind of cyber element to them. And it's a, that's a really important thing to watch. So I'm glad to see that the government's taking that seriously. We've certainly heard over the years that uh, through uh, cyber attack and such that many of our systems, electricity system, this sort of thing, energy systems are, are at risk. But for the most part, this seems to have been under the radar. Uh, d- certainly with the last election in the United States and, and the Russian collusion and, and allegations and, and so on and so forth in regard to the depth of that, uh, does that bring this more to the forefront now? I think so. Um, I, there was a report released on Friday that, you know, I mean, I don't know why they released it on a Friday afternoon, but uh, I don't make these decisions. And what they uh, argued was that, you know, they, they, they took, CSE took a look and they worked with some other agencies in Canada, and they basically came up with a review of our system and said, actually, you know, we haven't seen major state actors trying to hack into Canadian elections yet. Uh, it could happen in the future. It could also happen at the provincial level, which is an interesting 
thing for them to say that they think actually the provincial level might be more vulnerable than the federal level. Um, and that, yeah, so, I mean, it's, it's something that they're aware of. But, you know, the nature of our, our democratic system, because it's a little different from the U.S., also kind of shields it a bit from some of the problems that they had down there. So, you know, I think, again, it, it's good to be I'm glad they did the review. I'm glad they made that review public. To Canadians so they can actually see. I would actually encourage everyone to read it. It's a very accessible document, and it's on the CSE webpage that they can read uh, the assessment of what they thought about how the Canadian electoral system is, 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 is okay, is potentially vulnerable, but that they're they're getting ready to actually look at it. Uh, we've certainly heard uh, the interference in the U.S. election, as well as fr- uh, France's as, as well. Uh, is Canada a target? Are, are we vulnerable? Well, we've already seen the Russians try some kind of low-level influence operations. You'll recall uh, when Christian Freeland was appointed foreign minister, the, the Russians immediately responded by trying to say, oh, look, you know, her grandfather was a Nazi. And they tried to put out stories that way. So we do, I think we can reasonably expect that these states may try. But, you know, it really is going to depend on what the interests of actors are. You know, I mean, it, like, um, will Russia see a great benefit from kind of trying to disrupt the Canadian elections? I, I don't know. I mean, in the U.S., it was it was certainly a coup. And, you know, when they certainly tried to in, uh, interfere with uh, France, um, there's some speculation that they may have been some uh, Russian interference in the uh, British Brexit referendum. Um, but by and large, it really is going to just depend on whether the Russians see it in their interest to kind of... Um, get involved in our elections, and, and we don't know if, what the result of that's going to be yet. Is it a matter of time before we get a handle on this? Will we still be talking about this five years from now, or is this a generational thing where this will be the war of our generation, this will be the warfare of our generation? You know, I, I would be surprised if we stop talking about this in five years. I think, um, you know, like I said, I talked about that spectrum and where we're moving down. Um, certainly the Department of Defense, if you look at its defense policy review that they put out about, you know, two weeks ago now, I think, they, they're they recruiting heavy on cyber. They're starting up new cyber operations units. They, uh, you know, some of the legislation that was passed in this national security review actually, you know, talks about how, um, CSE can offer support to other government departments. That's very important and certainly it speaks to the need for good cooperation between CSE and the Department of Defense. But um, yeah, so I mean, I think that a cyber, like I said, I mean, we're already seeing it even in the low tech conflicts that, that are affecting us. So I, I strongly suspect this is not anything that's going to be going away anytime soon. That being said, um, on the cyber front, we have seen some success with bilateral treaties with China, for example. On the cyber front, so, you know, the United States and China have uh, signed a treaty, the UK and China signed a treaty, and by all accounts, the actual amount of hacking between the two countries isn't over, but it's certainly down, and that's a very positive thing, and I think, so I think we need to work on our cyber defense, I think we need to work on cyber deterrence, but we also need to work on cyber diplomacy to try and, like, you know, minimize the impact of this as much as possible. Is one country smarter than the other when it comes to this sort of thing, Stephanie? You know, I think Canada is actually quite good at what it does. And, you know, it's part of the five eyes. We do a lot of cooperation with the U.S. And certainly the U.S. is widely still considered to be the best actor, even though uh, China and Russia are very good. Now, that's on the technical side. Um, The issue that I think, you know, we're dealing with and we're looking at these kind of election interference is also on the social side, right? So the problem is, like, they, you know, the, the attacks that Russia did in the U.S., 
weren't particularly sophisticated. They were low-level mm-hmm. um, uh, phishing attacks. And so, for example, um, just quickly, the um, John Podesta, whose emails were leaked, I mean, he just clicked on a malicious link. Yeah. That's all he did. Hmm. So, I mean, the thing is, like, it's the social side that, in the kind of social influence that seems to be the greater issue, at least in terms of the election right now, rather than the issues of, of security. Stephanie Carvin has been with us, Assistant Professor of International Affairs, Carleton University, the Liberal government creating a new watchdog to review security and intelligence agencies and creating an umbrella over existing agencies. Stephanie, thank you for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Hey, thanks for having me on. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Convicted killer Luca Magnata is getting married next week. Uh, a uh, Quebec TV station says the man who killed and dismembered Chinese student Jun Lin in 2012 will wed a male inmate from New Brunswick on June 26 at the penitentiary in Quebec uh, on Quebec's North Shore. To talk more about all of this, Lee Chappelle is with us, Canadian Prison Consulting, and is on the line with us now. Hello, Lee. How are you today? Um, well, Scott, how are you, sir? I'm doing very well. Thank you for taking the time to join us. Uh, you're, my, uh, you're welcome. What is Canadian uh, Prison Consulting? What exactly do you do? What exactly do we do? Well, we do uh, training for various government agencies. We also do training for Defense Council um, in regards to when a person is going through court and then Heading into uh, incarceration, it's it's kind of uh, filling a void there where um, essentially there's very little advocacy subsequent to a trial and conviction. Defense counsel's job is done at that time. And so, so what I do is, is we do um, training to government agencies. We do instant expert training for a variety of uh, things such as coroners, health care, um, just to give insight into corrections. Uh, what, uh, what are the rules around marrying while in prison? Are there any? What, what are the guidelines? They're fairly stringent. Uh, so there's, there's a variety of things. If, and this is only applicable in the federal system for one, it's the, there's no such thing, uh, in provincial jails. Mm-hmm. So in our federal correctional system, there, I, I, I can say prior to, prior to founding my firm, I served 21 years in our Canadian federal system, mm-hmm. uh, from the age of 18 to 40, essentially, um, on and off through a variety of uh, property offenses. That, um, and, and what I can say to that is that when it comes to... So there's a variety of things. If you have a spouse prior to charge, conviction, incarceration, uh, that person would typically, as long as they're not co-accused, they're part of your, your offense, would be eligible for uh, private family visits. If you have somebody that you... Um, there's, a, there's a pen pal process that if you have six months of correspondence followed by six months of, of visits at that point you could qualify for a marriage um, so there's a variety of ways and I believe in this regard I'm, I'm only familiar once previously from the 80s right through till today of a couple a, a male and a female who were both incarcerated who had corresponded for two years and, and eventually culminated in, in marrying 
And how that occurs is the person who's in the lower security institution travels to the higher security institution to, to, to do this. But it's really rare. And certainly this circumstance is uh, one I wasn't aware of until, <laughs> until I received the call from you today. Station. So for the most part, uh, this does not happen. People do not get married after the fact uh, once no, they're incarcerated. it's really rare. It's really rare. I think, you know, the private family visiting program and community contact is, is generally very good for people who are, who are looking to come back um, and for reintegration and for it's a productive thing. Uh, this is exceptionally rare, um, this instance here. So a lot of this would be considered part of the rehabilitation uh, once they get out or, you know, considering that they would get out eventually, unlike this case. I agreed. Yeah. So, um, what? What? So, in the case of the the man and the woman that you were talking about, the woman with the lower uh, had the lower offense. She traveled uh, to the other uh, to the male institution. Into the, into right. that. Now, is that allowed? How do you get visiting rights to do that? Do you, Do you get those rights well, if you are married over and above what your what your conviction well, would include? Again, I think I, from the one that I'm familiar with, it took two years of correspondence. Right. Um, and then eventually they, they, it came to a point where, where it was accepted that, um, that, that, had, that they had addressed. Uh, and again, the, the, the Correctional Service of Canada um, looks at this in, in, the, in the regard of um, it being a positive. Uh, the majority of offenders are going to return to our to society. Right. And, you know, so ultimately this is generally a positive. In this instance, certainly I don't believe this guy will ever come back yeah um so again i'm i'm really surprised by the news with this i don't know i can't even answer who would foot the bill i'd have to think that that would be privately paid for i don't believe our government would be doing that so in this case with luca mcnada his partner is still incarcerated correct According to, as from my understanding, he's incarcerated in New Brunswick. In New Brunswick, right. So how would this work? Would he be able to go to New Brunswick to visit McNada? Or sorry, go well, leave New Brunswick to go to Quebec to visit McNada? From, again, from my understanding, and, and this is new, and I've looked it up a little bit prior to our call, um, that, that, that this marriage is scheduled to take place in Port Cartier, which is a very unique institution in its own right in Quebec, uh, Quebec's North Shore. It now presently houses a heck of a infamous group of people there, including Paul Bernardo, Colonel Williams. Hmm. Um, I mean, this is kind of the end of the line for, for right. uh, prisons in Canada, and it's, it's got the, you know, the worst of the worst. So according to the news reports, it's saying that the inmate from New Brunswick would be traveling to uh, Port Perche for this marriage on June 26th. But he, as far as we know, he's staying in his institution in New Brunswick, correct? He's not moving there, is that? Absolutely no, he would not be moving. Right. So would, part of the pro- sorry. Part no, of go me. ahead. Well, part of the process with this, too, is with any visits and any sort of thing like this when it comes to, let's say, a pen pal um, eventually emerging into um, a, a relationship and then a marriage. And, that ha- and that's not entirely uncommon. That happens, you know, um, 
it happens. It, I would say it happens, you know, every few years, a, a few times where somebody through a pen pal relationship progresses to the point where they visit and then where they get married uh, in, within the institution. So nobody leaves the institution when that occurs. And this is, and I'm referring to somebody who's being on the street and begins relationship as a pen pal. Right. But one thing that the Correctional Service of Canada does is they're very, very clear. They do information sharing, risk assessments. They're very clear with, with whomever's coming in uh, to, to ensure that they're aware of the charges and, and everything, you know, all the details about the individual. Right. Does the length of the sentence matter or the severity of the crime, like this case, for example, in Magnata's case? Well, obviously it, it doesn't. doesn't. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't. And I think... Part of that is, I believe, it would be a slippery slope. So, if you know, if you were to introduce, you know, prohibition for somebody doing a life, uh, and it's a first degree murder, so it's life twenty-five. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I think at that point, no, they're not pro- they're not prevented at all. No. So, how often would these two get to visit? Well, that's a great question. I don't believe this would actually represent a a private family visit or otherwise known as conjugal visits. I, I, I'd be hard-pressed to believe that would be part of this. Um, I'm not entirely sure. I think this may very well be a ceremony that they're essentially honoring under, you know, they've, they've apparently fulfilled all the, the, the two years of correspondence mm-hmm. and uh, are entering into this uh, both consensually. I don't believe that they would have um, uh, a lengthy visit, but I, I can't speak to that. There's been no announcement as to what's happening with it. And we don't know uh, much about the partner that he's marrying other than from a prison in New Brunswick. Do we know how long they've been in or any of that information? No, nothing's yeah. been released about the other individual as yet. I'm sure I, a journalist will be chasing this down because it's... Uh, it's, uh, so how how would this person in New Brunswick get clearance to go to the penitentiary in Quebec uh, for the wedding on June twenty sixth? Would that well, suggest that, would that suggest that it's a much lesser crime than McNaughta's? It, it would. It would suggest certainly that he that the, that, the, that, the, that this other person is in. Uh, at minimum, uh, a medium security uh, right. or minimum security institution, because it would have to be um, Port Cartier is, a, is a, a super maximum security institution. So, yes, this person would be a lower security individual. I don't know if it's another lifer. I don't know if it's uh, somebody who's served. I just don't know anything about They haven't right. named the person. Uh, how I'm many, incredulous, though, frankly. <laughs> how many how many visits would someone like this, like a McDonough or even a Bernardo, how many yep. visits are they allowed in any given time? Or is it unlimited as long as it's during a certain time? How does that work? How does visitation work? Especially well, for especially for people of this caliber. Right, and, and, and it presents a lot more of a challenge on corrections and, and facilitating visits for people like this um, when you refer to a Bernardo or whatever, because they're not mainstream population. They're, they're yeah. housed in a different area. So, um, you know, visiting would be certainly more sporadic than, than general population, uh, which is fairly often i mean almost on a daily basis uh there's visits available in penitentiaries so you could you if you're at a penitentiary theoretically you could have a visitor every day um no 
the the way it occurs is on the weekends there's visiting so saturday and sunday yes right uh and throughout the weekdays there's typically one or two evening visits scheduled but nothing to interfere with the workday schedule right so um what are your thoughts of hearing about luca mcnada getting married well, to be honest, I, I, I uh, have a difficult time with it. Um, I would have to think, again, when I talk about the stringent things in place and sharing of information as to, um, you, you, I would have to think this, this guy represents a risk to anybody that he's in contact with. Um, mm. In light of his history, uh, certainly this is, is somebody that... Uh, I, I would think, you know, I mean, I've seen private family visits and marriages denied due to um, due to records, due to previous convictions. Um, I, you know, I I I'd like to really believe that uh, be footed, the bill will be footed entirely by 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 these individuals and mm-hmm. or their families. Um, I wouldn't like to think that our taxpayers are paying for this. Um, I just find it very unique, and it's it's something that um, uh, is unfortunate. I think even this news is unfortunate to the victims in being able to hear about this. Yeah. Um, Lee, what are your thoughts? Uh, you know, you, you brought up a valid point here. You were talking about the danger that McNaughta could impose. Um, yeah. So would they let this person from New Brunswick in a closed room, unsupervised with this guy for any length of time? I mean... I would suspect not. Um, again, I know I know there's information sharing. I know the other person would have to be fully advised of, of everything that... Um, uh, of all the convictions, of all the... And, and at that point, um, a determination would have to be based upon risk. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I I I would suspect that that it would be hard pressed for for them to go ahead with let's say a private family visit. Hmm. Uh, do, do, um, do you think this will set a precedence? Do you think others will take advantage of this? Is there any advantage to uh, Luca Magnata for this other than his own personal um, his own personal experiences? Yeah, and I would say probably other than his own personal experiences, not so much. I mean, typically, visiting community support, maintaining support from the community, having family contact is, is usually a very strong part of of having somebody come out and be successful, and not um, uh, to, to you know to, to 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 have more success upon release, um, allowing for reintegration to be. Mm-hmm. more positive, and to reduce recidivism. I think there's, there's studies that show that it clearly does. Mm-hmm. I was married in the penitentiary. I had three children, and it was a very strong motivator for me to come out. And, and, and um, Now, were you, married, were you married prior to going in, or you were married in prison? I, I was married in Joyceville Penitentiary. Really? My wife, yeah, I was, in 1992. Are you still married? Uh, I am. To the same person? Uh, I am, yes. Uh, how did that, if you don't mind me asking, how did that come about? Well, in, in this instance, when, when I was arrested, my my wife, at that time, fiancé, was pregnant. Mm. And it was in the early stages of her pregnancy. Um, it was clear that we were going to look towards making a life once I, I was able to. It was property offenses that I was in for. 
and she uh, decided that um, she was definitely going to to stick with me, and and we went through the process of having visits. We went through the process of speaking with the chaplain. We applied for this, uh, and we were able to obtain a wedding um, that occurred in Joyceville, 1992. Part of that was also a three-day private family visit uh, following the wedding. Now, the wedding occurred again within the institution. It wasn't off-site. Right. So a justice of the peace comes in to conduct it. And we paid for the justice of the peace, and we paid for the food in our visits. Right. So that's why I'm saying I'd like to, to believe that even the travel here is paid for by, by the individuals mm. involved, not by, not, not by the Canadian yeah. Lee, you Lee, you said you spent 21 years off and on between 18 and 40 for those property offenses. How did you turn it around? Well, for me, I hit a point uh, in my early 30s, Scott, where... It really hit me. I, I almost, I, you know, I was battling mental health. I felt like I was going to lose my sanity at one point. And I, I ended up making a very strong six-month commitment to eliminating all subculture, all drugs, anything from my life, that, um, any guilty knowledge, essentially. Uh, I began taking university courses. And at the end of that six-month period, I realized that... Um, uh, I, I sure felt a heck of a lot better, and I felt like I was capable of doing much more than time. Uh, I was a guy that was born to the Children's Aid Society, foster care, child welfare system. By the time I was 16, I, I, I was a crossover to the criminal, uh, criminal justice system. And I hit a point where I really understood that ownership, accountability, insight, remorse, were powerful things, and acceptance and forgiveness also were, were, were things that I worked on that allowed me to extricate myself and not carry the bitterness and frustration and anger that I had carried throughout my youth. How difficult was it to, for you to get back on your feet once you did get out, especially with the record? Uh, it's a challenge. There's no question. I failed a number of times um, prior to actually finally completely extricating myself from it. Uh, it it's a real challenge um, coming out and... But it's certainly achievable. I mean, I think Canadians are very compassionate and forgiving in nature. I think if you're honest and straightforward, if your actions meet what you say you're going to do, you know, you can forge your way if you're determined to do so. And we can also change hard wiring, I believe. We're capable of doing that. I I was able to. It's been uh, 20 years now since I used cocaine, and that was something that was a nemesis for me. Advice for others who are on that same journey that you were and, and, well, and, hope, and hoping to have the same success that you now have. Well, and I work with people in that regard. And again, what I strongly encourage is ownership and accountability for your actions. When I refer to insight, uh, understand what brought you to where you are in your life. Uh, forgiveness and acceptance. Often people, you know, um, a lot of people in our prisons were victims of crime before they were even adults. Mm. Uh, and they need to find their way clear somehow, some way to um, acceptance and forgiveness, uh, but ultimately ownership for their actions and not feeling like they're the victim. When you're feeling like you're a victim, you're not going to get out of it. If, if you're looking at the system and saying it's unfair, if you're looking at all the things that happened to you in your life and saying they're unfair, essentially you're giving yourself permission to continue doing things to ju- and, and you can justify doing, doing crime. 
Lee Chappelle has been with us, Canadian Prison Consulting, talking about convicted killer Louis, uh, Luca McNaught getting married next week. Lee, thanks so much for the time and insight. Uh, fascinating. And congratulations. Thank you, Scott. Good for thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you, Lee. Lee Chappelle, Canadian Prison Consulting. Uh, further proof. Look at that, that uh, you can turn your life around. Good for him. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. All right, do you know what a fidget spinner is? You probably do if you have kids that are around 8, 10, somewhere in there. Chances are you may know what these things are. Now, uh, I guess originally, and we're trying to get our guest on the line to talk about this, uh, originally these, and they've actually been around for a long time. People think that they're the latest craze, like the Pokemon thing. Remember last year, everybody was going around looking for, where am I? Well, yeah. um, this seems to be the latest fad, except there really isn't much of a fad about it in the sense that they've been around for a long time, heading back into the late 90s, I understand. And that's simply due to the fact that, uh, simply due, so our guest said he can't come on? Well, how can he do that? He's busy. <laughs> so are we. Was this not all prearranged? I know. I won't have this conversation with Luke on air. Uh, so anyway, okay, so I'll just do a little bit and then we'll move on. Um, so it looks like our guest, he's probably playing with his damn fidget spinner. Tell him to put down the damn toy and get on the phone. What the heck's the problem here? So anyway, these things were originally designed... Uh, from what I understand, uh, kids with attention deficit disorder, kids with autism. Uh, it was something that they could use to uh, play with whenever they felt a bit anxious, whenever they were, you know, they just needed something to do, something to keep them, their, their hands busy. I'm convinced that how it translated from that world into the everyday world, the mainstream world, I believe is is due largely to social media. Not only that the word of these spreads on social media, but when you take your device away from your child, a lot of them will just cry and go in the fetal position and start trembling. Take away their device, give them a fidget spinner. It seems to work. And I honestly believe that is part of the reason that they are as popular now as they become, considering they've been around for so long. And, you know, Luke brought up a valid point. We were talking about this off air that um, there's like a bazillion different versions of them. You know, when I first saw my, my son with one of these, I thought that it was, you know, there was one type. There was one manufacturer. It's patented, and these people are making a fortune. Turns out that's not the case at all. That there's various manufacturers, most of them from China, so apparently there's not a lot of quality control there. Did you know that? A lot of the stuff coming out of China, there isn't a lot of quality control. Is anybody aware of that? So... um, you can see them in, in different sizes, shapes, colors. Um, my son had one that lit up. 
So there's all different versions of these devices because there didn't seem to be any patent for them when they were initially produced. And now they're flying out of China left, right, and center, and they're pretty much available everywhere. Well, the concern is now, a consumer watchdog group says they're not as harmless as they might appear. Boston-based World Against Toys... Sorry, I didn't finish the sentence. World Against Toys Causing Harm. Sort of sounded like that uh, place they go on route off the red-nosed reindeer. No, uh, th- this isn't World Against Toys. This is Toys Cars Causing Harm. Uh, is scheduled to address spinners and other situations around them. Today, talking about fidget spinners. Apparently, because they are not patented, because they come in so many different forms, because... They're coming from so many different parts of the world. You really can't be sure if they're safe or not. Uh, WATCH watches list highlights potential dangerous uh, items that parents should avoid for their kids. Toys that perhaps haven't been tested the way that they should. Apparently authorities in Germany said last week they plan to destroy tons of the tiny twirling gadgets that have been confiscated by customs agents because they've arrived in the country illegally, not going through the proper inspection process. So as a result, Germany's just yanking them all, and they're going to destroy tons of them. Kids will be crying everywhere. Uh, They said they tested the toys which arrived from China and found that bits can fall off and pose possible choking hazards for small children. So I don't know if this is every fidget spinner or just certain ones. I mean, because there's no real way of identifying them. There's also a, a post, which was on Twitter, from a man by the name of John Harris. And he's got a picture of his son, three pictures of his son. Looks like he's probably around five years of age. And he's got a huge U-shaped cut in his upper lip, above his upper lip, between his nose and his upper lip. Almost like a perfect U. Looks like it's about the size of a quarter. He says, I know this post isn't going to be easy for some to look at, but I felt it necessary. This was caused from playing with a fidget spinner and compressed air across it. So it sounds like they were using the fidget spinner in a way that it was not intended to be used. But I guess without any sort of directions, packaging... Have you seen them in stores where they come in packages? They're not even in packages. They're just sitting there, right? So there's no real directions. There's no hazard warnings. None of that. Because they're just flying off boats from China. So the father goes on to say that we've been playing with it for a while, and all of a sudden it exploded. We are, we are at the ER now, waiting to have stitches. I am sharing this so no one else has the stupid idea that I had. At least he's honest about that. We were lucky it missed his eyes. Oh my goodness, think about that. It could have been much worse. And he's got a terrible gash 
uh, above his lip, below his nose. So, yeah, if that had gone into the eye area, he no doubt would be suffering some very serious damage. So uh, Germany has said that's it. We don't know where they're coming from. They don't have the proper authority to be here. So they're just trashing tons of them. And they said in this case, uh, the toys had arrived from China. And their reasoning for doing it is that they have... They found with testing them that bits are falling off and obviously can pose a choking hazard or perhaps would happen to something like what this person did. Uh, Using compressed air across the top. I'm not sure exactly what they were doing. Um, Maybe he was holding it. You sort of hold these things between your index finger and your thumb and then you spin it with the other finger. That's really all it is. It's just a series of bearings. Sort of looks like a triangle and a series of bearings that you can spin around. Um, So were they holding it and then blasting compressed air into it and uh, and then it came apart and hit the child. How do you feel if you're the dad holding it and say, watch this, son. You think you can make it spin fast with your finger. We're going to make it spin even faster with compressed air. Dad fires up the compressor. Next thing you know, son's almost lost his upper lip. So, you know, here's a scenario where you can say, well... <laughs> That's not what it was intended to be used for. Well, how do we know? There are no directions. There are no packaging. There is no packaging. There are no warnings. Because we don't know where they come from. So it'll be interesting and no luck. He's not. So this guy's not coming on at all? All right. So uh, unfortunately, uh, we're not going to be able to get uh, the, the expert on that we, uh, we'd hoped for to find out more information about this. But we will certainly uh, keep trying and try to bring you uh, more accurate information on just how safe or unsafe uh, these toys are. In the meantime, uh, a little common sense probably works around the house. Uh, you know, don't be bashing them with hammers. Don't be shooting compressed air into them. Uh, use them for, I guess, what they were intended to be used for, and that's to fidget with. Um, How do you know whether you've got one that's safe or not? Your guess is as good as mine. But it wouldn't hurt to perhaps examine the one that your child has. You know, it was interesting because um, my child had one that a friend had given him. And it did actually come apart because he asked me for a hammer to fix it. (laughs) And I said, uh, let me see it. And I tried to put it back together and it wasn't going to go. So you're toast, pal. This one's done. And it was it was in the garbage. So, you know, there you go. There's there's a, you know, a personal situation where, you know, they actually have, you know, come apart. My my son has experienced that. The Scott Thompson Show weekdays from noon to three on AM 900 CHML.